Hi Lakewood, Pastor John here. I'm excited because I'm introducing to you one of the greatest speakers we have, and it happens to be your campus pastor, Evan Martin. Man, Evan is doing a fantastic job. We couldn't be more pleased with him, and you are in for a great treat. Put your hands together and welcome Pastor Evan. Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. All right. Just remember, I was the first one to wish you Merry Christmas next year. So uh, we had a wonderful Christmas. Uh, I'm, I'm right in the uh, age bracket where my kids are young and it's kind of organized chaos. It's wrapping paper everywhere. Uh, and, and after we did Christmas at home on Christmas morning, we went to my parents' house that uh, afternoon, and I went there with the intention of repenting to my parents for all the years that I woke them up so early in the morning <laughs> after they probably stayed up wrapping presents late into the night. So uh, I was up very late on Christmas Eve after our Christmas Eve services, uh, putting together one of the toys, and then was woken up very early by our kids. And so uh, just had a blessed Christmas and hope it was the same for you. So uh, I have uh, already broken two of the toys that, uh, <laughs> that Santa Claus brought to our house, and uh, one of them was like a uh, jump rope type of a thing that you put around your ankle, and so I apologize to Kaylee. Uh, Kaylee was on the front row last night and uh, listening to my sermon, and afterwards I got done, and I said, I said, so how did, how did it go? What did you think? Or did you fall asleep? And she said, I fell asleep one time. So uh, hopefully you guys will be able to stay awake for this uh, message. But, um, you know, when, when I got a balsa wood plane for uh, Ethan, who's sitting on the front row today, and we took it outside and threw it one time, and it landed uh, on the ice and broke right there. So, um, you know, but I, I talked to somebody who's working down in the nursery this morning, and, and she said, you know, I, I cringe when she has a, a little boy, and she says, when he's rough on this little car that they got that's not really supposed to be basically ridden, he's like riding it, and uh, she's like, but I guess I spent the money to see his reaction when he opened it, right? So uh, we've already got our money's worth out of those things. And the brokenness of this world really should remind us that our hope is not in this world, but our hope is in the fact that we expect Christ to return, and when he returns, he will make all things new, right? So if you didn't have necessarily a Merry Christmas, but the holidays are a time that you don't necessarily appreciate all that much because of maybe who you're missing or what you're missing, know that this world is temporary, and we are the representatives of a hope for something greater, something more lasting. We're part of an everlasting kingdom, amen? Well, let's pray. I'll jump into this message uh, that we have today. Heavenly Father, I come before you, and God, corporately, we gather today on a snowy day. And God, your ancient scriptures say that you have thoughts about us that are more numerous than the sands on the shore. And God, we don't live on a shorefront, and we don't get to see the sand every day, but God, we do get blessed to see the snow, and as it fell last night and we woke up to it this morning, we know that you have thoughts concerning us that outnumber the snowflakes, that just in a shovel scoop full would be too many to count if we could. 
And so, God, we sit here today in awe of not a deity that set things into motion and then stood back and watched it run its course. But, God, we stand here today knowing that we have a God who called himself Emmanuel, that showed up as a baby in a manger, hope in a most unexpected location and moment. And that same God who came to us where and when we could not come to him, you have those thoughts concerning us. And so, God, we love you. We praise you. We just ask that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds. God, do something supernatural today, not something that could be done or replicated by just mere human effort. God, do something supernatural. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Well, let me read you uh, scripture, and then uh, we're going to jump into a story. But if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you don't, uh, it will be up on the screen behind me. We're going to read one verse, and then I'm going to kind of set the narrative of this story so that we're all on the same page. You know, you go into the Old Testament, and uh, some of those stories we have glimpses and remembrances. Some of you who went to Sunday school, maybe it was worked out for you on a felt board uh, by your favorite Sunday school teacher. Uh, but this one is kind of a faint memory for most of us. So I'm going to read a verse here and then jump into it. First Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Or other translations say, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Or the message says that it was in this place that our God has helped us. So Samuel sets up a rock, and it's not just like a normal rock that you might find in your garden. This is a massive stone that it probably wasn't just him setting it up. It was a group of men, maybe some oxen, maybe some ropes, maybe whatever it was. It was an endeavor that probably took a couple of hours to set this thing up and then to resituate the ground around it so that it wouldn't fall over, but it would last for generations to come. He set up what he called an Ebenezer. So why would an old man take time to set up a stone in the midst of a whole nation and say, this is Ebenezer, a rock of help is what that word means. And I'm putting this here and establishing it for more generations to come that would pass by this way and say, why is this rock standing up like that? When obviously it wasn't created to stand up like that. Who set up this stone that way and why did they do it? He set that up because he wanted to make a statement that said, this far the Lord has helped us. Well, why would a man do that? A man would do that because he's sick and tired of what he's seen throughout his whole life and he's trying to change not just his own life, but change the direction of an entire nation. See, if you remember, let's talk about and remind ourselves who Samuel was. Samuel was the son of Hannah. Hannah was a woman who came to the tabernacle in Shiloh and petitioned the Lord for a child. She was barren and could not get pregnant. And so she came and she cried out without words at the altar in the tabernacle, so much so that the priest Eli thought that she was a drunken woman. And she was begging and pleading for God to answer her prayer. And when Eli realized that she wasn't drunk, she, he blessed Hannah and sent her home and said, May God grant your request. 
And then a little while later, she became pregnant and she had Samuel. But the promise that she gave, that if God would come through on a promise for her, was that that firstborn son would be dedicated to spend his entire life in the service of the Lord at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And so she did. Once the child was weaned, she brought him back to Shiloh and gave him over to Eli and to the house of God to serve. And so that is this Samuel who grew up under the care of Eli while, his, while Eli's sons were also there ministering before the Lord. And Samuel, if we put it in the context of the pages of our Bible, think about this. He's the last of the judges. So any of the judges that you're familiar with, Gideon or Samson, Samuel comes after them, contemporary to some of them, but he's basically closing out the era of the judges. And he's before all the kings of Israel. So he's the one that will eventually anoint Saul as the first king of Israel and then David to take his place. And so that's where we find ourselves in the history of this story. But the story goes as this. Samuel learns how to hear from the Lord as he serves in the tabernacle, but he doesn't have very good models of ministry. See, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they were horrible. They served in the temple doing the work of God, but they disobeyed God. They did horrible things that you can read about in the Bible, but they basically disobeyed God, but they were still acting as priests during that time. And Eli was aware of it, but didn't do anything to stop his sons. So here we have basically a theocratic nation that their sole purpose is to serve and follow after the Lord, but they don't have good leaders pushing them in that direction. So much so that they're actually offering up worship to Baal and to the Asherah poles. They're serving multiple gods influenced by them, by the other nations that surround them. The Philistines were one of those nations. And so we go into this story a little bit further and we find out that the Philistines are coming to attack the Israelites. And so they go to battle one day and the Israelites go to fight and they lose about 4,000 men. And so this nation, without a king, and without really a strong leader at that point, Eli would have been considered their leader. But Eli's getting older, and his sons aren't very strong spiritually. So you can imagine there's 12 tribes of Israel. Who's in charge? If you've got too many chefs in the kitchen, it doesn't always turn out right. And so they think, okay, what should we do? And they come to a a consensus, and Hophni and Phinehas decide that this is what they're going to do. They're going to go back to Shiloh, talk to their dad Eli, and get the Ark of the Covenant, and bring the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle, and bring it to the battlefront. Now, this is not the Ark that we know from Noah, right? It's not a big boat that they kind of roll out onto the battlefield. This is the box essentially, that Moses built when the Israelites were on their exodus out of Egypt and through the desert. And after coming off of Mount Sinai, Moses instructs the Israelites how to build this ark that houses the presence of God. It's a symbol of where our God is Emmanuel dwelling with his people. This This is a thing that not all of the Israelites would have seen because it would have been kept in a room in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And the priest, Eli, one time a year would basically crawl under that curtain and offer up sacrifices and go in supplication and repent for the sins of an entire nation. 
And so Eli's sons take this, which is set apart as holy, and they're trying to use God to accomplish their own victory. And so what happens? The next day they go out to fight the Philistines again, and they get slaughtered. And the Ark of the Covenant is actually captured and brought back into the land of the Philistines, closer to the west coast of what is now the nation of Israel. And there's a messenger that runs from the battlefield, and he's torn his clothes, and he's thrown dust and dirt on his hair to represent mourning. And as people see him racing and running into the town Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, there's a big commotion, and Eli, an old man at that time, was sitting on a bench outside of the tabernacle, and he says, give me the news. What has happened? And he said, we've been completely defeated. He said, both of your sons have died, and the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And with that news, Eli falls off backwards from his bench, breaks his neck, and he dies. And then some of the historical writers in the Bible would attest to the fact that at that point the Philistines actually followed that messenger, followed the Israelites as they fled, and they ransacked Shiloh, and that was the last time that the tabernacle of the Lord was actually in Shiloh. And so the Ark of the Covenant is lost, and now we have a nation that's lost thousands of their young men. They, if they had been equals to the Philistines, they could think, well, maybe we could kind of keep up with them and defend ourselves, but now they're at a loss and they don't have what represented to them as the presence of the Lord. So they don't know what they're going to do. They're taking defeat. Meanwhile, the Ark of the Covenant goes back into the land of the Philistines. And so the Philistines, they worshiped a god called Dagon. And Dagon had his own temple. And maybe it was a room just like this, about this size, where the Philistines would come in and worship their, their god. And so they thought it appropriate to bring the spoils of that victory to the God that they prayed to for victory. And so they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon, and they set it in front of this big statue. And they probably have their celebrations and their sacrifices, and then they go home, and then the next morning they come back into that temple, and what had happened? Right there, I'm getting hand motions. Dagon had fallen over flat on his face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Coincidence, the world might say, right? The Philistines said that. So they pushed their God back up and they set him back into place. They did their sacrifices for that day, whatever they were supposed to do. They went to bed. They came back the very next day and what had happened? Again, he fell over. Dagon fell over. This time, the head of the statue fell off and both of his arms fell off and he was laying prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. At this point, the Philistines are starting to wonder, is this coincidence or is this something spiritual? But that wasn't the only sign that let them know that they were kind of in a mess. What happened was, while they hosted the Ark of the Covenant and they had it for seven months, the people in those towns started getting tumors and then there was an infestation of rats and mice. Not a good day, right? They had victory, and then it was met with peril. And so what happens, the Philistines had five major cities, and the city where they brought the Ark of the Covenant to 
they got sick and tired of the rats and the mice and the tumors, and people who got the tumors actually ended up starting to die very quickly, and so they said, let's get this box out of here. I don't want it. So they sent it off to the next city. The next city took it. I don't know why, but if you were the third or fourth or fifth city, you'd think that you would learn the lesson. Well, they eventually did after multiple people died and they had tumors and rats and mice in all of these cities. And so they eventually gathered together and they said, what are we supposed to do? So they got their priests together and they said, what should we do? They said, well, we can't just send it back to Israel. Israel might think that we're going to come and attack them if we garner some troops and kind of make a line and march towards Israel just with the intent of bringing their box back, right? And so the priest said, let's do this. Let's set it on a cart, but let's not return it empty-handed because we should actually give an offering with this. So take your gold and let's form it into the shape of tumors and let's form it into the shape of mice. And so they did this and they set it on a cart with the Ark of the Covenant, set it on a cart, and then they took two, two milk cows who had young calves that they were still nursing. And they said, let's hook up these cows to the cart and let's send it on its way. Now, if you know about milk cows, you know that if a cow is nursing a calf, it won't go away from that calf. It'll keep turning around and going back towards that calf because it has to release its milk still. It knows that. Well, these two cows, the Bible says, set out on the path and turned neither to the left nor the right until it reached the land of the Israelites. And then it gets to a field right by a large rock and the people of Beth Shemesh were out and they were harvesting their wheat harvest at that time and they see this cart and just on the distance at the top of the hill there were some Philistine leaders that watched just to make sure that that cart made it back to where it was supposed to go. And so the people of Beth Shemesh look at this cart and they recognize what could not have been done by them was done for them. And the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God was coming back into Israel. They slaughter those cows. They offer up a sacrifice to the Lord. They eventually call in all of Israel, including Samuel, and say, this is what the Lord has done for us. The ark eventually goes to the house of a man named Abinadab, and it stays in his house for 20 years. And then you guys probably know the story better than this one, that it was eventually King David, after King Saul, that said, we should bring the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem. He does that, he tries the first time, and he fails. You know why he failed? He tried to put the, cart, he tried to put the ark of the covenant on a cart, just like the Philistines had done. But God gave specific instructions for that. And so he tries the first time, fails, eventually goes back three months later to Obed-Edom's house and gets the cart, and he brings it back into Jerusalem the appropriate way with much rejoicing. Remember, he danced wildly before the Lord, and his wife got upset with him. Remember that story? So here we are. We find ourselves at the point in time where now the ark has been gone for seven months. The Israelites are in no state to be able to defend themselves, much less go back and capture the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back to them. So what they could not do for themselves was done for them. And so Samuel calls all of the nation, brings them together and says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make sacrifices and we're going to consecrate ourselves and repent 
for how we've been leading life in the past and recognize that it's not about us and us trying to get God to do something for us, but it's really about us learning how he wants us to live. And so we're going to go back to his laws and his rules and his way of doing things. So here's what they did. Samuel gathers them at a place of corporate repentance. The whole nation comes together, and they do what Samuel tells them to do. And they take a young lamb, and they, comp- and they burn it completely. And in the Old Testament, if you took a burnt offering and burnt it completely, it represented total consecration. We're going to get to that in just a second. But as they are going through this, basically a church service, the Philistines see this whole nation gathering close to their border. And they think, boy, what's going on? And so they muster their troops, and they come up, and they start to move in and advance to attack the Israelites all over again. It's been seven months since their last battle, and now they're ready to fight again. The Israelites, they've already lost tens of thousands of their fighting men. They couldn't, they couldn't hope to win victory again. They weren't even prepared to. They didn't come to muster for battle. They came to worship and sacrifice. And so in the midst of an attitude of celebration, worship, and repentance, the Israelites look to Samuel, and they say, Samuel, pray for us. Pray to the Lord for us, that he would save us. And so Samuel, he prayed for them. He offered a sacrifice to them that represented in their minds a complete consecration, a total giving over of all of themselves to the Lord. Right at that moment, the Philistines advanced against them. And then what happened? The Lord thundered against their enemies, and it threw the Philistines into complete chaos and confusion. Now, if it had been rainy, if it had been cloudy, that probably wouldn't have been written in the Bible, but it was probably a very clear day And the Lord thundered against them and threw the enemy into confusion. And then the Israelites go from that place of worship. And they go and attack the Philistines and they completely completely rout their enemy. And then it says that they won back the cities and the land that the Philistines had actually taken from them. And then from that point on, the Philistines never again advanced into Israelite territory. Is that an awesome story? So why would an old man set up a big rock and take the time to say, I'm going to set this up for the young people and for their children and for their children's children to ask this question? And when they ask this question, the answer is going to be, it was at this point that God did something for us that we couldn't do on our own. Ebenezer, the rock of help. Who is the rock of help? Our God is the rock of help. So if you ever think of trying to do it in your own way. Think again, because it's our God who helps us, and it's our God who centers us. Now, some of us have had moments throughout this year where we can look back and say, you know what, I didn't think I could make it. Maybe coming to church even today at the end of this year is actually a small miracle in your own mind. Some I know have gone through very difficult seasons of life this year. But some of us need to set up an Ebenezer and say, thus far, my God has helped me. Where I couldn't do it in my own strength, where I've had failures in the past, all of a sudden God showed up 
And he showed up in such a way that he restored the presence of God in my life. And not only that, he reclaimed cities and he reclaimed territories, fields that I once sowed and harvested in, he's given back to me. What does that mean in your family or in your mind or in your occupation or in the visions and dreams that God has set in your life? It means that we're going to set up a rock today and say, thus far, the last weekend of 2013, God has helped me. And I'm not going back to playing religion like Hophni and Phineas, who would pretend to be priests during the day and then at night do whatever they wanted. And then those guys who would say, well, you know what, actually, we could bring the presence of God into our situation over here. And if God's presence is over here, then maybe he'll respond and accomplish what we want done in this moment. So it's Samuel who saw that as a model that said, I'm done with that. And you know what? If I'm done with that, all you guys are done with that too because I'm not going to put up with that anymore. Eli and Hophni and Phinehas have seen their time come and their time go. And now I'm going to be the leader and I'm going to be the judge, not because anybody set me up to do this or labeled me as that, but because I've heard the voice of God and he set me in such a time and such a place as this. So Ebenezer, I don't know how long it's going to take, but we're going to lift up this rock and set it up as a monument to say, thus far, God has helped us. And whenever we look at this, we're going to recognize it's not in our own efforts and in our own talents, but it's God. So we shared an outline this weekend, and so all four campus pastors are, are sharing an outline, and all four of us are teaching dramatically different lessons, but that's okay. So we're going to squeeze this story into that outline. And so the first point in that is look back. Samuel said, till now the Lord has helped us, or like the message said, this marks the place where God has helped us. I just touched on it just a little bit, but I think, I think religion is used two different ways in this world. It's used in this way. I'll get God to help me when I need him to get me out of a situation that I got myself into, right? And so Hophni and Phinehas bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle, and they expect just because he's there, we're going to gain victory. But Samuel was taught a very different way. You guys remember this story. Samuel was just a young man. He was, he was a child, really, still growing up in the tabernacle at Shiloh. And he's attending to the duties of the tabernacle and keeping the lamp in there burning, but also then helping Eli as Eli progressed in age, taking care of what Samuel could do at that time. And it was late at night, and Samuel was actually sleeping near the Ark of the Covenant. So this was something that was already near and dear to him that was lost later on. But as he was resting... And getting ready to fall asleep that night, he heard a voice. And so he responded by running into Eli's room. And he said, here I am, you called me. You remember Eli said, I didn't call you, you can go back to bed. Three times this happens. And it was the third time that Eli realized, wow, I'm not calling him, but maybe the Lord is calling him. And so he said to Samuel, he said, go back to where you're sleeping. And if you hear it again, say, speak, Lord. Your servant hears. And so it was after that third time that the Lord called out to Samuel again. 
And Samuel said, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. And then the Lord gave him instruction and vision. And it was from that time on that Samuel learned to hear God's voice. And so here's how you can use religion. Here's how it is used. One of two ways. You can get yourself into a difficult situation and then say, God, help me. Help me, God, help me. Help me, God, help me. And if we had a box, we would go find it and we would bring it into that situation and say, okay, do what you do. Help me. Get me out of this financial disaster. Get me out of this relational confusion. Help me do this. Or we can sit in the posture of Samuel and proactively say, speak, God. I'm here listening to you. Speak to me. And that puts us in a position where we're led by the Spirit, where we're operating in His time and on His calendar. We're saying, God, before we go and do anything, much less get ourselves into trouble, speak to me. Lead me in this. I could say many things right there because the argument with recent events is where's God in our schools when something tragic happens? And you say, well, we took prayer out of schools. But now we want God to respond in our schools. Is that Hophni and Phineas? And then we blame God when something happens. God, you didn't work. Well, maybe it was because the presence of God wasn't captured. The presence of God left. Does that make sense? So if we can lead by posturing ourselves at the beginning of our day, at the beginning of our week, at the beginning of a new year, and say, God, speak, I'm listening, and just rest in that. So when we look back from an honest perspective, we can see our sin and our failures, but we can also see God's grace and mercy. I want to close out this year with confession, but if I say confession and you come from a Reformed background or a Catholic background, confession is kind of a, I don't know if I want to do that. But confession can be looked at from two different angles. Confession could mean, yes, I want to confess those areas where I've fallen short. Be honest and vulnerable with God and friends to say, hey, this is where I haven't made it this year. But confession is also kind of a proclamation. It's saying, I'm going to confess that God is good. I'm going to confess that God is full of grace. God is full of mercy. But just like Samuel did that with the gathering of the nation, there's something unique and special about corporate confession. So what I'm going to do next, some of you guys might trigger some memories. Some of you guys might be able to repeat this with your eyes closed. But for the majority in this room who've come out of um, more of a charismatic, uh, non-denominational mindset, this is something that might be special. And so I'm going to do this, and we're going to actually read something corporately. It's called the Corporate Prayer of Confession. It's found in the Book of Common Prayer. Christians have done this for many, many, many years. And so we're going to say this together, and we're going to say it actually really slowly because this, these are words that are fashioned by men who took their time to put these words and phrases together. But in doing this, we're going to close out this year confessing 
where, we, where we've fallen short. So if you'll put that up on the screen, I'll start you guys off and then I'll flip off my microphone and we'll just say this out loud. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against If you need those words, we can get those to you, um, but you can also find them very easily online. Close out this year with confession, confession of where we failed, confession of where we've fallen short, but also confession of how good our God is and what he can do for us. Point number two says look around. It's good at the close of a year to just kind of look around, and Samuel did that when he established that rock, that Ebenezer, and he said, thus far the Lord has helped us. A realistic inventory of who we are should cause us to praise and to pray. Prayer, though, is something that uh, it's not taught a whole lot. It's not preached about a whole lot. Uh, We had a video announcement this morning that announced that we're going to have corporate prayer every month. And a very small percentage of us in this room was like, yes, that's awesome. And the majority were like, you mean I would drive to Lone Tree and pray for an hour? I don't, I don't know if I could do that. Because if we're honest, and we're not going to parade everybody up here and say, this is where I finished the year with my prayer life on a scale of 1 to 10, But if we're honest, some of us would probably answer the question, yeah, my prayer life consists of praying before meals, a quick prayer before I walk out the door in the morning, a quick prayer that trails off as I put my head on the pillow. Uh, We live in a depraved society when it comes to the area of prayer. But I think that it's because we haven't really been taught an easy way how to pray. You guys, if you come here on a consistent basis, you know that I try to close out every service just entering us, pushing us into the presence of the Lord with a time of prayer. Maybe that's a prayer blessing over all of us as we walk out of these doors. Maybe it's just a prayer that responds to the message that we've heard. That comes out of my heart and what I feel like my spirit is connecting with in this room and through the message But let me just be teachy just a little bit and not preachy. If you want to learn how to pray and pray authentically, one very simple tool would be to do this. You just take your Bible, open it up into the middle, and if you do that, your Bible will most likely open up to the book of Psalms. Psalms, many of them were written by King David, some of them while he was uh, a shepherd in the field. Uh, some while he was king and some while he was waiting to be king, running for his life. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Psalm chapter 40. 
And I'm just going to model for you quickly an example of how you can learn how to pray better. When you don't know the words or when you feel like prayer is for those people who would call themselves intercessors, the people who would dare to put on a lanyard and stand in the back of our auditorium at the close of the service and offer to pray for you. But prayer is something that every Christian should participate in. And it's actually a lot easier than what we think. But here's something that I'm stealing from uh, the Jewish people because they've learned how to do this um, and they learned how to do it a long, long time ago. And if you grew up as a part of that great nation, you would have known that praying through the Psalms is something that uh, is a staple to their society. So Psalm chapter 40, verse 1, it'll be up on the screen behind you. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Just take one verse and then look at it. Take time and then just pray what it says. Personalize it. Say, God, I thank you that you have heard me. And God, I thank you that you've heard me because you've turned and essentially leaned in my direction so that you can hear me better. That's what inclined means. So God, I thank you that you've been intentional to hear me. And right now, even as I pray to you, I know that you're listening to me. God, I thank you for giving me patience to wait for you. But God, I need more patience to learn how to wait for you. Because God, I want to operate in your time frame and I want to operate in your calendar. And so God, give me the patience to wait for you. And when I call out, please once again hear me. Verse number two says this, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. God, you know where I've been. And now, from this perspective, I recognize that you've put my feet on solid ground. And God, I thank you for that. I thank you for a solid family. I thank you for a stable job. And God, I thank you for tearing me away out of the stickiness of this world. God, help me not to get stuck in that ever again. And help me, God, as I take steps to make them secure and strong. Put me on the path of life. Verse number three. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in God. God, I just pray that you would give me a joyful heart that would sing to you, even a song that I've never heard before, that you would wake me up with a tune spiritually in my heart and in my mind, that you would put that in me and it would set the tone and it would be the soundtrack for my day something that reminds me of you and God your testimony and your faithfulness as the other people in my life co-workers friends relatives neighbors as they see me walk this path that was once sticky and muddy and miry as they see that God I pray that you would receive glory not me receiving glory but that you would. Does that make sense? Do you see how you can take any of those verses and just say, I don't know what to pray. Prayer's not just for pastors. Prayer's not just for 
intercessors and prayer is not just for people who gather once a month and pray for an hour and a half that was three verses right it took us three to five minutes whatever it was do you see how that could set the tone for your day I know that for some of you guys in this room that was very first grade level but sometimes I think we speed past some of those things and we assume that people know what we're talking about. And so I just want to challenge us as we close out this year, let's close it out with authentic prayer. Let's close it out with confession and let's close it out with, with authentic prayer. Point number three is look ahead. Samuel said as he set up that rock, that Ebenezer, he said, thus far the Lord has helped us. And then he led the people in a burnt offering. That burnt offering I mentioned to you guys signified complete consecration. Complete consecration. And it's interesting to me that when the nation began to turn towards the Lord, that caused the enemy to gather their forces and come against them. Some of you guys could raise your hand and tell stories where you say, yeah, I decided that I was going to give my life to the Lord and all hell broke loose. Some of you guys are in the midst of that right now. Maybe not, oh yeah, I just got saved or oh yeah, I just recommitted my life to the Lord. But you're saying, you know what? I'm trying my best to live according to the standards of the Lord and follow his precepts marked out in the word of God. And I feel like I can't get any traction in this life. Is it because the Philistines are coming against you and you're right where God wants you to be, but the enemy's just kind of coming over that hill and you go, oh God, oh God, and you look and you find whoever Samuel is in your life and you're like, pray for me, and whoever you turn to is like, pray for me. I need a job, I need this, I need that, whatever it is. Because when we start to fully consecrate ourselves, the enemy will come against us in full force. And our response shouldn't be then to defend ourselves. Our response shouldn't be then to get the Ark of the Covenant and put it in the front of the battle and say, God, do it. Do what you do. Do what you do. It's just say, God, now I know. Speak for your servant hears. I'm going to posture myself in a place where I'm going to consecrate myself. I'm going to praise I'm going to pray through the Psalms. I'm going to be authentic in my response. And at that moment is when the Lord responded. 1 Samuel, getting back to our story, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I think it'll be on the screen behind me. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So my last thought here is close out this year with consecration and reclamation. Meaning, let's not just repent and pray and consecrate ourselves. Let's take it one step further because I don't want to just do church just to do church. I want to do church that says this campus is known as Jubilee Fellowship Church Lakewood. 
I see that as a prophetic utterance that this city would be taken by common, average, everyday people who caught fire and said, you know what, I kind of just did church in the past, and I'm tired of it. And so I'm going to set up this marker in my life that says, thus far God's helped me, and if he's helped me thus far, I know that he's going to continue to help me. And so the Israelites, in their complete and total consecration, weren't just satisfied with putting up a big rock and saying, okay, the Philistines, you guys don't, don't come back here. You know what happened last time. Don't cross this line right here. This is ours. They said, no way. I'm going back and I'm taking the fields that I once sowed and harvested in. I'm taking back the cities that still have my empty house there that you're living in. I'm taking it back. And so there's a bunch of us that have relatives, families, friends, businesses, associates, acquaintances that drive through these streets, go through our neighborhoods, attend our schools, and patronize our businesses who we can speak over the prophetic word of God and say, on my watch... A complete and total consecrated Christian has spiritual authority to take back that which the enemy has taken from them. So we can pray over our schools, even from this location, and say, God, be ever-present because we're sending two of our kids back into Arapahoe High School to be missionaries after that. And we can say, go and run wildly through this place because it belongs to God not just as it should be right now, as the world expects it to be, but coming to life. You know, it says all of creation groans in eager expectation that the sons of men, sons of God would be revealed. So if we raise up a standard in our life and close out this year with repentance, authentic prayer, consecration and reclamation, I think we could change the city. I think we could change the state. I think we we could change our families and change generationally maybe some of those things that you know have been stolen from you. Does that make sense? I'm going to have the worship team come on up and we're going to close this out. Bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. We give you glory and honor. God, we find ourselves somewhere in this story. God, some of us recognize that we've tried to use the presence of God to rescue us in our own time of need. We've brought you into the midst of the battle expecting a different result and maybe, God, that's brought us disappointment and disillusionment. Some of us have friends or family that have walked away from you because of that disappointment and disillusionment. Right now, we call them back into your presence. God, we recognize that in all of our efforts and all of our attempts, we're not capable of coming to you, but we recognize that you are a God who comes to us. Emmanuel, God with us. God, you sent your son born as a babe, laid in a manger, 
How symbolic is that when we recognize that the Israelites told themselves the story of your presence coming in a, in a wooden cart in a most unexpected way seven months into a season where they thought they had lost you altogether, thought that they had lost your promises and your covenant. But you came in a wooden cart, returning your presence and your promises and your covenant. And God, it caused them to worship you, to completely consecrate themselves and live anew. God, we thank you for a man named Samuel who saw religion done poorly and decided that on his watch, religion wasn't going to be done at all, but it was going to be relationship with you. It was going to be repentance. It was going to be prayer. It was going to be consecration, and it was going to be reclamation. He said to those men surrounding them after he had repented and prayed and consecrated, he said, now go back and take that which was taken from you. For our God is a rock of help. He is our Ebenezer that would say, thus far, God has helped us. In this place, God has helped us. God, wherever we find ourselves in this story, give us the ability to move forward with you. Not as a label that we would wear. but as a real relationship that we enter into. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.